Join Anthony Esselin, John Wark Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 18th, 2018. Light episode today. A little bit different. It's two different lectures. One episode. You'll get it in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare, compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying Instead of the Word of God, yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by Christians is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. It's just a complete pandemonium mess out there as far as the doctrine and the teaching go. So, in order to properly learn how discernment works... It not only requires you to, in some ways, to be exposed to false teaching and shown how it how it works, so that you can protect yourself. But you also got to listen to, uh, you know, people who actually work through biblical texts and exegete them. Kind of an important thing, so that you have that sharp contrast in your mind. Which is one of the reasons why we do our light episodes every week the way we do them. So today we will be listening to two lectures that I uh, gave at Sunday school at uh, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota, where I am the pastor. And uh, the first is a short one, and I wasn't able to give a long one due to the fact that uh, I uh, I had to catch a plane on, the, on that particular day. So the, uh, the name of the message is The Trinity is Not Negotiable. And we take a look at one of the more misunderstood portions of uh, the Athanasian Creed, uh, which, uh, which we uh, as a church... Uh, read out on uh, uh, Pentecost Sunday, uh, or Trini- actually Trinity Sunday, not Pentecost Sunday, Trinity Sunday, and uh, and so um, we did that. And of course, the question comes up, which is a great question, you know, you know about the you know, the tail end of the Athanasian Creed. We take a look at that in light of one of the gospel texts, I think, in the Gospel of John. We'll take a break when we're done with that segment, and then uh, we'll when we come back, we'll listen to 
another uh, – this is a full-length one uh, and back into the book of Exodus. And the name of that lesson is Nor Shall You Be Partial, Nor Shall You Be Partial. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And uh, so let's get to it. Here's lecture number one, shorter lecture. Uh, the Trinity is not negotiable. All right, let's pray and we will get started. Lord Jesus, again, we humbly come before you recognizing that we cannot understand your word apart from your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send the helper to help us understand your word, convict us of our sin, and comfort us of the assurance of our of forgiveness through what you have done for us on the cross. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there was a question that came in between the services. I'm going to answer that one first, and then we'll ask if there's any questions regarding the sermon. What little time we have today, I, again, I have to catch a plane. I wanted to dedicate to taking a closer look at the topic today regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. But if you remember, in the Athanasian Creed, a common question that comes up is at the end of the Athanasian Creed, in uh, section 39, it says, Those who have done good will enter into eternal life. Those who have done evil into eternal fire. Hmm. Does this sound like the Athanasian Creed teaches salvation by works? Ah, on a first look. Right. Now, here's the important thing. What is a creed or what is a confession? Why are these things important? What makes them important? So we're all on the same page? Well, kind of. So what is the reason why the Athanasian Creed is true? Why is it true? Why has the church looked to this creed, to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and said, this is what we confess together? It's biblical. All right, so here's the idea. A confession of faith, it comes from the Greek word homologeo. Homologeo. Homa, same. Legeo, say. A confession is to say the same thing. So the reason why confessions are true is because they say the same thing as Scripture. So, in other words, the three ecumenical creeds, for us the Augsburg Confession, the small catechism, the large catechism, and all these other uh, documents that we have as part of our confessions, the reason they are true is because they say the same thing as the Bible. They summarize it, but we're going to note something here. These words in the Athanasian Creed should, should already be kind of buzzing around in your head because you should be saying, that sounds strangely familiar. Because these words will rise again with their bodies, give an account concerning their own deeds, and those who have done good will enter into eternal life. Those who have done evil into eternal fire. That is almost, but not quite, word for word what Jesus said in John chapter 5. So let's take a look at it. Open your Bible to John chapter 5. The verse in question doesn't come up until a little bit later. But I want you to see it in context because the verse in question is in verse 29, but we're going to add some context and we're going to start at verse 19. Jesus, always having these long-running arguments with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jews of his day who rejected him, Jesus says, 
Amen, amen. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Now, important to note, today's Trinity Sunday. You're going to note that Jesus makes it clear He is not the Father. He's not the Father. He's talking about the Father as if the Father is a different person than He is. Because the Father is. But He's not a different deity, a different God. That's kind of the important part. So, He can do nothing except for what He sees the Father doing, only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgments to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as, the, as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So real quick, would it be correct to say Jesus here is saying that you are saved by faith. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, the Greek word, the Greek verb for believe here is the same Greek verb for having faith. The Greek word is pistuo, and it means to believe or to trust. That's what faith is. And the Greek word, the Greek noun for faith is pistis. So pistis and pistuo are kind of like grammatically related. They come off the same stems as far as the base uh, root words. So the one who believes has eternal life. Already you've got it in the bag. So whatever Jesus says next in this statement that he's making will not undo what he just said. Jesus is not schizophrenic. He just said, the one who believes has eternal life does not come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. By the way, if somebody does not come into judgment, that's kind of a big deal, right? Whoa, I'm not going to come into judgment. On the day of judgment, will their sins be brought back up? No. It's like, i got to do Napoleon Dynamite. Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is good news, right? Yeah, you haven't seen Napoleon Dynamite? It's a little silly. So, if you believe, uh-huh. and you are already repentant, yeah. and he knows your heart, yeah. you've been yeah. you've been forgiven. Yeah, you don't come into judgment. That's a gift, so then at that time, that sin doesn't come into because it's already been dealt with. Exactly. So if your sins have already been dealt with and you're not going to come into judgment, what's the only thing left for you on the day of judgment? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Right. Okay. Or as I like to point out, that God pulls out the Excel spreadsheet. And he's, Jesus has totally cooked this, this spreadsheet in your favor. It's, 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 it's scandalous. So all of the columns and the rows and the cells that had all of your sins recorded in them, Jesus went control alt delete and um, you know just flushed them. Actually, he took them on himself, put them in his account, and he bled and died for them. So the only thing left in your spreadsheet are what good works. Now for the one who doesn't believe, 
they come into judgment. What's in their spreadsheet? Lots and lots and lots of sin. Can any amount of good works undo evil? No. None. No amount. So here's the idea then. Jesus has already said in this passage, the one who believes doesn't come into judgment has presently. It's in the bag. You've got eternal life. You have it. So what he's going to say next doesn't undo it. If properly understood, you'll see it for what it is. Then he continues, verse 25. Amen, amen, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. So everybody, come out of your grave. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Who are the ones in the category of having done good? The ones who believe. Because all of their sin is atoned for, bled for, died for. Nothing that you've ever done contrary to God's law will ever be mentioned by Jesus on the day of judgment. You do not come into judgment. The only thing left to do is to tally up all those good works. The one who's done evil, not so much. So now you can see where these words come from. These words come from John 5. And so we can confess this now in the Athanasian Creed. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. Well, this is most certainly true. All right. Those who've done good will enter into eternal life. Those who've done evil into eternal fire. It's pretty straightforward. Same thing as what Jesus said in John 5. And in the context in which he said it, he already made it clear. Salvation is by faith, belief. Only the one who has passed from judgment will not come into judgment. Who has eternal life is one who is counted as one who has done good. Everybody else, if there's evil in their account, that's because they remained in sin and unbelief. So just a get this clear in my head. Those who believe get a free pass in, but those who don't believe, do any of those get saved? Is there a, so the judgment is, you believe you're in, you didn't. You're yeah. In. Okay. Yeah. You're, you are either in on Jesus' righteousness and as a free gift given to you, or you can try to be saved by your own righteousness. Good luck, because even one sin in that spreadsheet damns you. You can be saved on your deathbed. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you are breathing currently, today is the day of salvation. Why would you want to wait till tomorrow? You don't, but there's yeah. still hope for those who haven't. Exactly. Thief on the cross. Yeah. 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 His deathbed was upright, but yes, exactly. Perfect example of a fellow who, on his deathbed, he was nailed to it. He trusted in Jesus. Um, Something that, as we're reading the um, Athanasian Creed, Uh and it's like three fourths of the way in, and I'm thinking all we're doing is talking about. 
the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and, and that's good. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, in the Apostles' Creed and what's the other one? Uh, Nicene. The Nicene. We talk about the you know the whole story from birth yeah. to yeah. the second coming. This has a and, different purpose. Yeah, but finally, yeah, you know, it is in the last little fourth yeah. at the end. You get but the incarnation. Bit, I was wondering if we were going to even touch base yeah. on it, yeah. but we did. Yeah, we did. So. Now, notice I'm going to ask you a question here. We confess the three ecumenical creeds. So, if your pastor said, "You know what?" Hell doesn't exist. Eh, love wins. Everybody gets saved. Could you use the Athanasian Creed to have him defrocked? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You do know that as part of my ordination vows, I promise to only teach what's in accord with these creeds and our Lutheran confessions. So if I denied the doctrine of hell, this creed affirms the doctrine of hell. If I denied that some actually go to eternal judgment, this creed affirms eternal judgment. If I denied that Jesus is God, this creed affirms that he is. If I denied the doctrine of the Trinity, this creed, really hard, confesses it. And you're going to note, it's painstakingly redundant, this creed is. Why? Because in the early part of the, of the Christian era, it is the doctrine of the Trinity where literally... All of the theological blood was shed, both in ink and in human blood. And the reason why it's named after, after Athanasius, if you're not familiar with this guy, he was a bishop of Alexandria, and this is a fellow who on multiple occasions nearly lost his life defending this doctrine. Because there was a fellow at the time of Athanasius who, his name was Arius. Arius was a smart fellow. And he, he knew kind of the power of music, and he denied the doctrine of the Trinity, and he was really good at writing little praise songs that taught that Jesus was not God, that he wasn't eternal, that he was one of God's created beings, and denied that Jesus was God, and therefore, if you deny that Christ is God, you end up denying the doctrine of the Trinity itself. Arius taught that Jesus was a godlike being, glorious in all of its majesty and stuff, but still he was created. Probably one of the angels. Uh huh. That's what Arius taught. There's a group today that still teaches this called the Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach the Arian heresy. And so that heresy spread through the church in the, uh, in the third and the fourth century. Literally, I mean, there were times in Christian history when the majority of churches believed the Arian heresy. And at the Council of Nicaea, it was Athanasius who took a leading role to get the people to open up their Bibles and look at this and to actually then affirm the Nicene Creed, which is Trinitarian. And so, but even the Nicene Creed didn't get rid of the, uh, get rid of the Arian heresy. And Athanasius, at one point, one of his opponents you know, met him face to face and said to Athanasius, Athanasius, give up. The whole world is against you. And we get this famous, famous statement from Athanasius. And he says, no, no, no. It's Athanasius contra mundum. It's Athanasius against the world. I'm taking you all on because I know what the scripture says. And he stood his ground. Now, he didn't hammer out this creed, but 
this creed was written in his honor because he was the defender of the doctrine of the Trinity, stood on the word of God and refused to literally compromise even one iota. And that's literally the case. You know, the difference between heresy and orthodoxy is one iota. An iota is a small little Greek letter. And the Arians would say, Jesus is God like homoiousius. And the Trinitarians would say, no, he is of the same substance of God, homoousius. See? And there's literally, between those two words, the only difference is one iota. So have you ever heard the phrase, I'm not going to budge one iota? That goes all the way back in Christian history. All right, Mark, you had a question. Yeah, it was in the uh, gospel that we read. Um, John. Read the, yeah, I'm going to read the verse so I don't get it wrong. Okay. Um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven except he was descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Yeah. Right away, I thought, what about Enoch and uh, Elijah, is it? Yeah. Now, I would recommend for a f- more satisfactory answer on this. Um, look at um, uh, the book, the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, um, and you can find that online. It's, it, you can find it online. You're going to get a, a better uh, thing here. Jesus isn't referring in the same way that you're thinking. Okay, And so you could say Elijah and Enoch both, well, they ascended into heaven. That's, that's actually kind of not the point that Jesus is making theologically. It's ascending in the sense of having come directly from the Father. It's not talking about the heavenly abode as it is so much talking about the very presence of God. So there's where you're going to make a distinction, and you have to pay close attention to the nuance that Jesus is making there. So this, is, this does not negate Enoch. It does not negate Elijah. That's not really the point at all. That it's like he ascended to an office almost. Yeah. Instead of just right, to heaven. Right. When Jesus ascended, where did he ascend to? Heaven. Okay. More specific? To the right hand of the Father. Right hand of the Father. Okay. Now, God the Father is spirit. Where's his right hand? <laughs> right? You see what I'm saying? So right hand in that sense is not talking about the Father physically having an actual right hand. It is, a, it is an idiom referring to the place of power. Okay, Jesus is in the very presence of the Father, in the right hand, in the sense he's kind of in the driver's seat. Think of it this way. If you want a picture of it in the physical realm, when Joseph ascends, and think think with me here, Joseph is in prison for 13 years. He has, Pharaoh has a dream, two dreams, Joseph interprets them. Joseph ascends from the prison to the right hand of Pharaoh, And nobody is greater in all of Egypt except for Pharaoh than Joseph. But who's running the show? Joseph. So that you kind of have to pull in some other analogies here to pull this together. And here's the reason why. Because in order for us to understand things of heaven, we need a touch point in earth to kind of grasp it. Because it's always kind of by way of analogy or metaphor, you know, because that's how we operate. We need something we can kind of grasp. So I point you back to Joseph, and that's what that's, that's referring to. And so Christ has descended, and he also now has ascended. Okay? 
descended and ascended talking about right hand of the majesty at the position of power running the universe kind of thing. That's, that's what he's referring to. Not just merely going to heaven, you know, as if heaven, and this is where it gets a little weird, to talk about heaven spatially may not make sense. I'm not sure because I'm not sure how things work in eternity. In a time-space continuum like here, that makes perfect sense. But get me outside of the time-space continuum and I'm totally lost. I don't even know how it works. So, yeah. The word ascended sort of means that they would have had the power to ascend. And really, God brought Elijah, you know, he, he took them. Yeah. There's a difference in... Right. So, so when, if I were to say this, back in two years ago, Donald Trump ascended to the presidency. Am I telling the truth? How, 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 how much higher did he go in physical feet? Zero. He's still he's st- right. You see what I'm saying? When we, when we say in that sense, ascended is talking about ascension in authority. Ascension, you see what I'm saying? So you have to kind of watch the context on these things. But it's a good, complicated, nuanced <laughs> question. It really is. But, you know, uh, you know I, again, I, and that's, uh, the Aland um, book on the uh, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties helps with that. And this is a funny thing is, is that this is kind of the atheist game. They always look for these you know, these, these ways in which the Bible appears to contradict itself, and they totally disregard context. You know, what is Jesus' meaning in this text is a, is a, is a better question. So, You've kind of sometimes have always said in the past, you know, look at the coronation in the Old Testament uh-huh. and, you know, the, the red cord and all that yep. stuff. Okay, question. Um, and I'm thinking I know the answer, but I just want to make sure. John three sixteen and First mm-hmm. John three sixteen. Is there? Oh, I want to see First John. Is there? Um, I, there is similarity, no doubt. Is it? Is that uh, interesting? Is yeah, it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I would you say together. that it's a God thing. Well, everything in the Bible is a God thing, but yeah. Uh, so, so here, here's the thing. Okay, so First John three six. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, here's the thing: is that the the number system is not inspired. This is you know so so this has been put on the text. And what's fascinating, what I find helpful is, is that I personally believe that providence was involved in putting some of this together because. There's certain ways in which, mnemonically, that it's really easy for me to know where to go in the Scriptures to teach the Gospel to somebody. And I find it fascinating that it may not even be a coincidence that John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 are covering the same topic, but that may be intentional by the people who put the system over the text. Okay, But for instance, you want to know, if you want to be able to prove to somebody salvation by grace through faith alone, are you ready? Romans 3. <laughs> Galatians 3. Colossians 2 in this case. But you know, there, there's certain things that you just kind of work it out in this way. And this is how it works. It's wonderful how that, how that plays out. But Romans 3, Galatians 3, those are your go-to texts. And it's fascinating to me that they're both in the threes. So. Now, I hate to say this. I, I really am not satisfied with this fact, but I literally have a plane to catch. <laughs> so I have to end here today.
All right, we're going to pause right there. Actually, we finished that lecture. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll listen to lecture number two. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. When we come back, lecture number two, nor shall you be partial. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. 
does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, the Trinity is important and become supremely dissatisfied with your church if your pastor doesn't actually teach it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, Fighting for the Faith. Dot com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And our rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to 
just support us the traditional way. You can do so by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is Lecture 2, titled, Nor Shall You Be Partial. Here we go. All right, we're going to get started. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, Almighty and Everlasting God, we come before you in humble awe. You are the one true God. There is none other like you. Come, we pray. Bless our hearts and our minds as we study your word. Send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and our lives so that we may grow in love and grace and that we may go forth into all the world proclaiming your gospel so that others may learn of your saving grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Before we get started in the lesson today, if you want to put your finger at Exodus 23, you can. Before we get started, were there any questions that kind of percolated up during the sermon? Mikey. Um, okay, so it's, it's a comparison between two types of wounds, is the best way to put it. So the crushing of the head is a mortal wound. The bruising of the heel is a non-mortal wound. So you kind of have to think in those terms. And the irony here is, is that Jesus, on all appearances, looked like he suffered a mortal wound because he died on the cross, and yet he rose victorious from the grave. So although it was the devil who struck him, it turned out to not be a mortal wound. Therefore, what Jesus did on the cross turned out to be a mortal wound to the devil instead. So, uh, so that's the way you kind of look at it. You know, he will, you will crush his head, he will bruise your heel. It's just a, a comparative study of the two types of wounds. All right, any other questions? Seeing that there are none... Let's take a look at Exodus 23 as we continue to take a look at God's fuller revelation of the law. And again, we need to remind you that this portion of Scripture is, um, let's just say, (laughs) gospel-wanting, because the purpose of the law, I remember our three, the three uses of the law the Scripture really permits is, number one, uh, the law is used to guide the government in the punishing of evil. And I wish the government would pay more attention to God's law in those things because it seems to be that the governments are becoming uh, quite uh, intent on punishing good and uh, in rewarding evil in our day. Um, but the other is, the second, second use of the law is to show and reveal our sin. And then the third use of the law, again, only applies to Christians. Third use of the law is that use that reveals to us what a good work is. And without that third use showing us what a good work is, many people have ended up really damaging their faith or even shipwrecking it by inventing their own good works. You know, it's kind of a thing. So I'll give you an example that seems kind of silly. But if I, if I were to say that I, I think that a good work would be making myself a grilled cheese sandwich every day at 1 o'clock, as wonderful as grilled cheese sandwiches are, and everyone would say amen to that, that doesn't make it a good work. What makes, it a, what makes a good work a good work is that God says that it is. And so the law of God actually reveals to us what an evil work is and by contrast then what a good work is. So as we look at this, we'll kind of keep those categories in mind. Exodus 23.1, you shall not spread a false report. Selah, right? 
You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. And boy, I hate to say this, I've seen these things play out in my lifetime. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And so you're going to note here, Scripture, Eighth Commandment, you will not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is a fuller commentary on that. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And if somebody is spreading a false report, you do not participate in it. And if somebody wants you to participate by being a malicious witness, even though everybody that you know has decided that they're going to sign on to this endeavor, you are to say, yeah, no, I'm not going to participate. And you're going to note here then also to not be partial to the poor. Scripture flips this in several places where it talks about not siding with the rich because they're rich. But also, Scripture forbids you from siding with the poor just because they're poor. And so the idea then is this, is that in our day and age, we have to remember that thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor means that we don't get caught up in the gossip of the day. And there's a reason for this. God wants your neighbor's reputation to be protected And there are proper means by which someone's reputation can be tarnished. And the court of public opinion is not one of them. Because you'll find that in the court of public opinion, just like every other court, there's two sides. There are two sides. And both sides need to be able to provide their evidence. And oftentimes you will find that when there is a court trial and both sides present their evidence... Okay, let's say it's a criminal trial. Somebody has alleged to have committed a particular crime. Notice that in our government, you are innocent until proven guilty. In the court of public opinion, you are guilty and you can't prove your innocence. It's funny how that works. But in real courts, you're innocent until proven guilty. And that, let's say you you committed the crime. Everybody has to assume that you're innocent until it is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're the one who did it. And so you can say, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I have not done these things. Uh, And so that person is actually not telling the truth if they've committed the crime. But if they haven't committed the crime, they are telling the truth. And you'll note how many people emotionally get caught up in all of this. And we show partiality when we pick one side or another when we really don't know the facts of the case. Yeah. Well, I were commenting on that this morning kind of in the... When you listen to the news today, especially the 24-hour talk channels, whether it's right or left, they spend so much time speculating yes. on people's motives yeah. without having any basis for first-hand information. And so you know, whether it's right or left doesn't make any difference. they got so much time to fill with speculation that it creates this aura of you know, one perception or another when there's really no basis, in fact, for it yeah. until the news happens. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm going to, again, point this out. For myself personally, I can't speak for others, I failed all of my ESP courses in college. So um, I couldn't begin to tell you what somebody is thinking or feeling or what their motive is for something. And oftentimes you'll find that when they begin to speculate on their motive, they're assuming the person did that thing. 
And oftentimes speculation is assuming something that that person didn't do. And if you could sit down with that person, you'd realize that's not the case. And I've seen this play out on social media. There's this weird phenomena that happens, and, it, 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 and people have actually linked it going all the way back to the Monica Lewinsky scandal. If you have an opportunity, I do not care for this woman's politics. However, her story is actually quite fascinating. Monica Lewinsky, a few years back, did a TED Talk about the social media and Internet crucifixion that she experienced and how surreal it was to have her whole life and other details about her life that weren't even true just caught up in this frenzy of what happens. And here's the thing. There are, there are people that this happens to to this day. You know, we talk about the suicide crisis here in the United States. That seems to be all the talk this past week. Although I was overseas, you know, I still kept track of the newspapers. Everyone's talking about the suicide crisis here in the United States. When you look at teenage suicides, one of the mitigating circumstances behind that is the absolutely cruel gang, you know, ganging up on people in social media and the destroying of people's character using social media. Now, the swarming that takes place, all right? This is what the social justice warriors do, engage in swarming. Yeah. But as it says there in, in this reading here, as far as, you know, people ganging up on, on others, this Me Too phenomenon that's going on, okay, we've had one after another, and sometimes it's hard to believe that these people are actually guilty, uh, however, the court of law, I do still believe in it and whatnot. But these, they're getting away with it. Me too, me too, me too. And it goes all the way back to the Monica Lewinsky and how many me too's came out of that too. Yeah. And, and just not uh, uh, that whole 23-1 there, you know, you get the same people that will stick up for a poor person. Mm-hmm or somebody who can defend themselves, even if the poor person is, is actually guilty. And, and that social justice should not be. Yeah. yeah so it, social justice isn't justice. And that's the issue. And so uh, it, talking about the Me Too movement, the Me Too movement is a reaction against a very real cultural phenomenon that we've seen in our lifetime. And that is, is that there is a phenomenon where very rich and powerful people are able to get away with the most egregious things. You know, sexual um, abuse of other human beings. And they get away with it because they are wealthy and powerful. This, this definitely does happen. And so, um, it's happened since the fall of Adam and Eve. So, so this goes all the way back. That being the case, there is a fascinating thing that we have to come to grips with is that institutionally in the United States, it seems like there is, a, a, there is a problem in that the institutions are literally protecting the guilty. And so the Me Too movement is a reaction against that. But here's the problem. Not everybody who says, hashtag Me Too, is telling the truth. Yeah. And so the, the thing we have to remember is, is that when it comes to Me Too... The proper place to address these issues, these are laws that are broken. 
I'm very happy to see that Harvey Weinstein has had charges brought against him. He's pled not guilty. This is, he's going to see his day in court. But you think about somebody like Bill Cosby. That was painful to watch. Very painful because Bill Cosby in the 80s and 90s was the epitome of family values, Mr. Clean, of what it looks like to be a successful, wealthy, affluent, and influential African-American in the United States. And when these allegations came forward, not by one woman, but by many, we as a nation didn't want to hear it. And these women had to scrape, scratch, and claw to have their day in court. And after they had their day in court, Bill Cosby was found guilty. And so there's a problem here, and that is is that these women were voicing these allegations. Nobody was listening. Okay, So, so here's the idea then. We must always remember that when there is an error that the equal and opposite error is not never the solution. You see? So, on the one hand, where culturally there seems to be systemic institutional push to basically cover up and not give credence to women who are saying they are being sexually abused, you think of the Nassar incident in, you know, regarding the, uh, the Olympic gymnasts. How, they're thinking there's over a thousand victims of that pedophile. A thousand And what it took in order for that man to be brought to justice is actually a big part of the story. But remember this, that the opposite error, deciding to basically just have these things tried in the court of public opinion, that's not the solution either. Yeah, um, and it's probably politically incorrect to say this, but um, you think about the the outcry of someone who has been in a poor uh, economic situation Mm -hmm. and they go and steal and then there's the side that says, but they were really struggling and we shouldn't call them because of their life, you know, the the conditions that they were raised, that's an excuse. But it is no excuse no, for breaking the law. No. And this is where we have to rem- you have to take a look at the overall message just in these first few views, verses is that justice has to be completely impartial. The question is not whether you are rich or poor, whether you are powerful or you are at the bottom of the social po- totem pole. The question is, was there a crime committed? What's the evidence behind it? And this is why we always depict justice with a blindfold on and the scales of justice in her hands, you know, weighing one side or the other. And it's funny, that idea of justice being blind and being impartial has its foundation in Scripture. And that's what God would have us do. And recently, social justice warriors have actually stated that the idea of objective impartiality is actually a white supremacist ideology. Yeah, that's just slander. That's that's just stupid. But that's where the narrative is going. Yeah. So you're going to note that there's a whole group of people, the social justice warriors, that are intentionally trying to destroy the institutions of the United States, especially our legal system. And this idea that somehow to say that people have to be judged impartially in court, that is a white supremacist thing. I don't seem to recall 
um, you know, Martin Luther King, when he was alive, you know, somehow saying we need to get rid of impartial justice. And I don't think he was a white supremacist at all. Oh, yeah, but his beliefs now and everything have to do with global warming, too. Right. They do. Because you're do. a white supremacist if you don't believe in global warming. Got it. <laughs> okay, Does, okay. Let's just be blunt, okay? When it comes to the logic of social justice, there isn't any, okay? Just call a spade a spade. And if you need to mock it, mock it, okay? You know, basically ask somebody, did your ba- brain bake in the sun? Were you in the car too long? Are you dehydrated? You're not thinking rationally. You know, go with the Don Quixote approach. You know, you know maybe something's gone wrong here because somehow connecting white supremacy to global warming and, you know, and all this, it's nonsense, okay? It's absolute nonsense. So you have to see through that, best way I can put it. What I, what I see is in, in Exodus, that was written a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. It's a part of history that is the laws, okay? And how pertinent it is today, it is no more pertinent in my usually little 60 years here on earth than now. It is more pertinent now yep. than ever before in my lifetime. Let me ask you, um, was this book, were these laws revealed to a racial minority? No, they were not. They yes, were they were. to all of us. Well, actually, initially here, we're dealing with the Jewish people. They were a racial minority and they were oppressed. And anti-Semitism is alive and well today. So I think that's a good argument against this idea. No, no, no. Impartiality was actually revealed to a racial minority who was enslaved and oppressed long before African Americans were. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of strong, isn't it? Sometimes you have to serve the, the drink without ice in it. It's got to be a stiff drink. So pardon the metaphor, but you get the idea. Yeah, it definitely wakes you up. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's here. Yeah. Yep. Now, let's take a look at an example of this not happening. And again, I, you're going to note that I literally am always just in awe in a terrible way when we're dealing with people who are religious leaders who are intentionally doing evil. Going against this whole idea then, in Matthew chapter 26, consider the... <laughs> the, the trial of Jesus Christ. Matthew twenty six fifty seven. Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. I mean, we don't really have an equivalent for this in Lutheranism. You know, Curtis Lyons is not exactly the high priest. And in the LCMS, you couldn't say that, the, that Matt Harrison is the equivalent of this. Maybe in Roman Catholicism, the equivalent you come up with, this would be like akin to the Pope. So the very head of a very large religious organization, like that big. So Caiaphas, the high priest, and the scribes and the elders had gathered. So, I mean, who's who in church leadership is at the trial of Christ? Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. By the way, think over the past decade or so, they have found this site. We know where Caiaphas lived. So we know where this took place. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, they were seeking, look what they were seeking, false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. How does one go about soliciting for this particular thing? 
it's one thing to go to the market and say, you know, I'm looking for a really good, sharp, aged cheddar. Do you know where I can find one? It's a whole other thing to say, I'm looking for somebody willing to lie on the witness stand against Jesus so we can kill him. Anyone want to do, anyone, any takers? The price is right, anybody will do anything. Yeah, I know, but notice who's running this show. Peter. The whole, the, well, the whole, the, the Caiaphas and the greatest religious leaders of Jesus' time. They're the ones running this show. They weren't reading their scripture. Yeah, exactly. For all their expertise in the law of God, they seem to have overlooked Exodus 23, right? Well, if they'd have read their scripture, they'd have realized they didn't have the power that they thought they had. Uh-huh, exactly. So now the chief priests and the whole council, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They might put him to death, but they found none. <laughs> Though many false witnesses came forward. By the way, if you're going to lie, have you ever noticed this? That people who lie, they have to have like ridiculously good memories. The person who lies because they tell a lie. Now they got to remember the details of the lie they told. And then when somebody else asks them about it, you know, they might end up having to embellish on the lie that they told. And you usually can catch people in their words, right? Because, but so liars don't tend to agree with each other. And so this was like a fruitless endeavor to begin with, but they're seeking false testimony against Jesus. So they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Yes, Jesus did say that kind of um, let's take a look at the referent on that. Gospel of John. Gospel of John, I believe chapter 2. Yep, 219. Let me get there real quick. Duplicate tab. Love this text, by the way. John chapter 2, Gospel of John chapter 2, specifically verse 19. And let's consider the context on this, and then we'll go back to the trial. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, turned their tables, and he said to those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, immediately the question is going to come up. By what authority are you doing these things? I mean, could you imagine like going to somebody's church and driving out the money changers? Huh? Yeah, I mean, the coffee guys, right? Driving them out. How dare you turn my father's house into a coffee shop and drive them out, right? Immediately, you know, there's a question of authority. So his disciples remembered that it, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews, they said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Fascinating. Already by this time, they're kind of getting the gist that something's different about Jesus. And so they want a sign. They want a sign. We want a miraculous sign. Now, where does this concept come from, by the way? We're getting farther and farther away from our Matthew text. Remember when Moses saw the burning bush? He went to Pharaoh, and God appeared to him in the burning bush and told him to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses was not exactly keen on the whole assignment. 
And so he says, he says, you want me to go to the people of Israel? What if they don't believe me that you sent me? And God gave Moses two signs. Signs, miraculous signs. The ability to turn water into blood and the ability to turn his staff into a serpent and then take it up and it would become a staff again. He also had a leprous thing that he could do. Thing, and maybe a third sign. Three signs. So the Jews are saying of Jesus, show us a sign. Show us that God sent you because clearly you think you're acting on behalf of God here. So Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now we have an issue of referent. Was Jesus saying, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again? Or was he saying, destroy this temple? And I'll raise it up again. This is the second. Destroy this temple, talking about his body. And the Jews said it's taken 46 years to build this temple. They missed it. And Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Which, by the way, this is one of those texts that shows us that the temple in Jerusalem was a type and shadow of Jesus. Jesus is the real temple. And so you can kind of rewrite the chapter heading to this, you know, or at least the section. You can say the temple drives out the money changers from the temple. That'd be a great way to describe it. The temple has shown up in the temple, right? That's a very provocative way of speaking, but that's literally what Jesus is talking about. So then going back to our false witnesses then, Jesus' trial... Two witnesses came forward, verse 60, and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. This guy clearly didn't know what Jesus was talking about. But he was referring to an actual thing Jesus said. So the high priest finally thinks, Oh, I have a way to kill Jesus. Whew, we got some blasphemy going on here. So... He said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Well, if Jesus were at the time keen to defend himself, he might point out that they had misunderstood him. But Jesus didn't defend himself. So Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you, I command you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said, well, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes, said he's uttered blasphemy. Did he? Nope. You see, that's the thing. When you do not have impartial justice, you go into court having predetermined the outcome. Caiaphas wasn't about to leave this court proceeding which was taking place in the middle of the night, which is not when court proceedings are supposed to take place. What's that fellow in the UK who went to prison after a four-hour? Tommy Robinson, right? That was a kangaroo court. That was not justice. But when you're not interested in justice, you want liars, you want deceivers, and you want people who are going to get in line with the group. And Scripture specifically forbids that. We are to show impartiality in our justice. 
Now, I love these next verses. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Really? <laughs> Can't this just say, if my, the people I love, my family members, my closest friends and confidants, no, it's your enemy. So there you are, you're walking down the street, heading to town to get yourself some pita bread, some chicken, something like that. And there is your enemy's ox. Uh, no. I hate that guy. <laughs> and he hates me. He can never say a kind word about me, ever. But then again, I've never really said anything kind about him. But at least I've kept my mouth shut. Yeah. And there's his ox, just chewing, doing its ox thing. God's law requires you to do good to your neighbor regardless of your relationship with him, whether it be good or bad. So you take blue, come on, blue. <laughs> and you take it to your neighbor's house. Hey, neighbor, that's what I got here. She was wandering. She was, she was down there. I just brought her back for you. <sighs> okay. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And what's funny about this, I seem to recall in one of Paul's epistles, is it 2 Corinthians or 1st? Let me find the referent here. Coles. And head. Hang on. See if I can find this. Let's see. Ah, it's Romans 12. <laughs> yeah. One of the least favorite passages of all of Scripture, Romans 12. Specifically, we're in near verse 20. For the sake of context, check this out. Romans twelve fourteen, Bless those who persecute you. This is not a favorite passage, right? Yeah. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, stewing, by, for, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. <sighs> i got to rethink my whole life. All of it. Yes, kill them with kindness. I'm going to murder you with kindness. Come here, give me a hug. <laughs> yeah, it does. It really, really does. 
And so you're going to note here, what we just read in Exodus is absolutely consistent with what we read in the New Testament. You would think that Romans 12 that we just read was a kind of a New Testament thing in light of, the, of Jesus and all this. This is all part of Torah, which again shows this, that the law of God is predicated on love. That every single sin, every single infraction of God's law is to sin against love. It is a shortcoming of love. And you think, in fact, let me see if I can find this real quick. Give me a second. I'm going to open up my Kindle app. I want to show you something here. If somebody were to come to me and say, Pastor, I I really, my conscience is killing me. Conscience is killing me. And, you know, I, 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 I just feel like I can't possibly be a Christian. I... I, I need to talk to you about something. And so what I would recommend in the situation like that is that a person visit me for the purpose of what's called individual confession and absolution. And I want you to hear these words. In individual confession and absolution, people immediately think Roman Catholicism. The problem with Roman Catholicism is, is that you don't leave with an absolution. You leave with a list of things to do. That's the problem, Right? The important thing in confessing your sins is that you hear that they are forgiven. But listen to this confession that is in the Lutheran service book for individual confession and absolution. The person says, I, a poor sinner, plead guilty before God of all sins. I have lived as if God did not matter and as if I mattered the most. My Lord's name I have not honored, as I should. My worship and my prayers have faltered. And I love this sentence. I have not let his love have its way with me. Isn't that really what is driving our sin? So we haven't let the love of God have its way with us. And so because of this, my love for others has failed. And see, Scripture so consistently teaches the love of God for us in Christ. We don't love because we don't love him because we you know we love because he first loved us is what scripture says. It's not because of us, it's because of him. And so God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for our sins. We then being restored in our relationship with God, being forgiven and pardoned, that love that God has shown to us cascades from us now to neighbor. And when it doesn't, and we sin. It's a failure of love. It's God's great love has somehow gotten bottlenecked. It's gotten dammed up. And as a result of it, our love for others fails. That's really the whole point. So there are those who I've hurt, those whom I failed to help, and my thoughts have been soiled with sin. This is exactly kind of how sin operates. So... So because we are forgiven, then we love our enemy. His ox is wandering around, we bring it back. Even if that means we're going to get yelled at by our neighbor. And that's the worst part. As far as I'm concerned, that really is the worst part. How's the saying go? No good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) Yeah. So even when you do your good deeds in love, you might get abuse heaped upon you. And that doesn't keep us from doing that. We do it anyway. 
All right, so if you see the donkey of, of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. I guess donkeys are stubborn animals. Yeah. So you load them up and the donkey says, I'm not going anywhere and decides to sit down. Seems like a logical thing to do if you're a donkey and you don't want to carry something, right? So apparently uh, getting a donkey back on its feet to do its burden duty is a two-man operation or multiple-man operation. If your neighbor's donkey has decided to lay down and he needs help, even if the guy hates your guts, wants you dead, slanders your name throughout all of Oslo, Minnesota, you help him. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Why? Because you are loved. Because you are forgiven. You shall not pervert justice due to, your poor, due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. How many of you have traveled abroad in third world, world nations and have found that bribery is a good way to get what you want done when the government officials are um, becoming an, a roadblock? I've heard so many stories like that. haven't myself experienced it. But isn't that how the government officials work in third world nations? The reason why they're giving you a hard time is because they want you to give them money to go away. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? So note that God then points to their slavery, to their oppression, as people who were outside of their homeland, enslaved as sojourners against their will in Egypt, and that suffering then doesn't result in retaliation and the expectation that there will be reparations from Egypt. Instead, that experience then informs how they are to treat the sojourners among them. Isn't that interesting? Social justice today thinks the exact opposite. You shall not oppress the sojourners. For six, chapter, verse 10, For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. This, by the way, is the basis of what today has been a perverted doctrine. But have you heard of the Shemitah? You haven't heard of the Shemitah? If you haven't heard of it, consider yourself blessed. If you have heard of it today, then you've, you're familiar with a false doctrine. All right, there's a fellow who's very popular on TBN. His name is Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. I think his name should be spelled C-O-N, but then again, I'm not really good at spelling. And he has this doctrine that he claims that he's kind of discovered. It's the law of the Shemitah. And the way this works, apparently, is he claims that every seven years, 
according to the Mosaic law, they're supposed the whole land is supposed to lie at rest. And because the United States hasn't been obeying God's Shemitahs, God has sent devouring, destructive financial cataclysmic events to happen in seven-year cycles. And he claims that the stock market crashes that we've seen in our lifetime have all taken place at the exact time of Elul 29 or somewhere in the vicinity according to the Hebrew calendar. And, that, uh, and so this happened a few years ago. Uh, the Shemitah cycle supposedly happened and the U.S. economy didn't collapse. It just didn't. So... Yeah, but he claims that other countries experience difficulties. So, you know, it just, it just didn't hit the United States. And I should say, within the next couple of years, there'll be a Shemitah cycle again. And he's claiming that God's going to wipe out the stock market and all this kind of stuff. That's not what the Shemitah is about. The Shemitah, which is kind of similar, you know, a Hebrew concept of the Shabbat, it's a rest. It's, there's... A day of rest once a week, Saturday. And every seven years, there is the land is supposed to rest and lie fallow. By the way, this is just good farming practice, by the way. You, yeah, have you noticed that good farmers will rotate their fields? You know, one year this, this part of their field will lie fallow, and then they'll rotate it. You know, it's common practice. You know, let the, let the land breathe a little bit. You know, re- recoup itself. And then the specific reason here as to why this is to take place, the land is to lie rest one year in seven for what purpose? I remember my dad always said everything goes in seven-year cycles uh-huh. because of the creation of Earth. Yeah. He said the weather, and he always rotated everything. Yeah. I and mean, that's just... There's a seven-year rotation. There is something to that. There's something to that. But what's the specific reason why the land is supposed to rest? To feed your neighbors. To feed the poor. So one year in seven is specifically, that is a year when the poorest of the poor will have access to your uncultivated field to eat whatever the land produces. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your neighbor. And when Israel, years, centuries later, were taken by God into captivity in Babylon, how many years were they there? Seventy. Why seventy? God specifically says, but the reason why they spent 70 years there was for all the unkept Shemitah years. Israel didn't obey this, and so seven years would go by and they didn't obey it. Another seven years would go by and they didn't obey it. Another seven years went by and they didn't obey it. Another seven years and they didn't obey it. On and on and on until they racked up 70 unpaid rests. And so God put them in exile for 70 years and forced the land of Judah to rest for 70 years, one year for each of the years that they didn't observe the Shemitah. Uh-huh. 
Fascinating. Fascinating. Sick. Huh? Go ahead. How do these Old Testament laws like this apply to us who are not farmers? Or doesn't doesn't it apply? I mean, it's, it's, I guess, a stretchy question. Okay, so we are not under this particular Mosaic Covenant command. God's not going to punish you uh, because you didn't let your field, your vegetable garden lie fallow, right? <laughs> so that's, that's kind of not the intent here. If you want to get at the intent of this particular law, again, this comes back to loving your neighbor. And so um, you keep this when you use your resources to help meet the need of your neighbor. That's really the intent of this law. Six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall rest. Woohoo! Day off. That your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant, woman, and the alien may be refreshed. So you're going to note, <laughs> I've made this point before and I'll keep making it, the original intent of the Sabbath, day of rest. It was on that day of rest that logically it would make sense to go to the synagogue. But the whole point was, take the day off. And if you remember last week's sermon, we pointed out that the Sabbath always points back to justification by grace through faith, not by works. So we enter into the Sabbath rest when we believe Christ and trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods nor let it be heard on your lips. And this is one that Israel did not keep. This comes back to the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. And we find over and again in the history of Israel, no sooner do they get into the promised land, no sooner does God make good his promise, removes these tribes before them, they move into their inheritance. And it's like, Almost the next day, it seems like, although it's a little bit longer than that. The next generation, hey, have you heard of Baal? Have you heard of Molech? Let me tell you about Asherah. Man, and it, I mean, it happened so quick. It happened so quick. They worship these false gods, and then God punishes them. God sends a judge, delivers them, and then the whole cycle starts over again. Three times in the year. Now, this is an important one. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time of the month of Abib. And in it, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest of the firstfruits of your labor of what? You sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. Now, when you read the cross-references on this, that is very specific that the males of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant were required to muster and appear before God in the place that He chose three times a year. Passover, Pentecost, that's what the Feast of the, fir- uh, the First Fruits of the Harvest is, and the Feast of Booths is the last one. Three times a year. So when we read in the New Testament, 
you'll note that Jesus regularly traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem at very regular intervals for these feasts. He was required to do so. The women were not required, but the men were. Now, there is a group in our time called the Hebrew Roots Movement. I don't know if you're familiar with these people, but they're today's modern-day Judaizers. And they literally teach that Christians are required to keep these feasts. And again, when you look at the cross-references, it's not merely that you're supposed to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is to be celebrated in a specific place. Is that Oslo, Minnesota? No. It's not even Grand Forks, as grand as it is. It's Jerusalem. The Feast of the First Fruits of the Harvest, Pentecost, Jerusalem. Feast of Booths, it ain't Tennessee, it's Jerusalem. Women aren't required to keep it, men are. You see what I'm saying here? So when Judaizers, modern-day Judaizers, show up and say, you people of Kongsvinger, you and your pastor, you are evil, rascally Lutherans, and you hate the Jews because Luther hated them too. And so you aren't doing your Jewish duty by going to, by celebrating the Passover. Sit down and pull out the fine print. Okay, pull out the fine print. And you're going to note this. The Passover requires a sacrifice. Yeah. Um, now you're getting, you know, that will create some awkward silence. It's like, first of all, men are required to keep it. You have to go to Jerusalem. Oh, and don't appear before the Lord empty-handed. You need to bring your sacrifice with you. How am I supposed to get me and a sheep over to Jerusalem? And where am I supposed to sacrifice it when I get there? Because I don't know if you've seen the Temple Mount. There's no temple on it. There ain't no Ark of the Covenant, there ain't no mercy. You might get stuck in Chicago. Yeah, that's right. And avoid Chicago, especially if you have farm animals. Don't try to stuff in the overhead mini. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, you're going to know that the Scriptures make it very clear. These feasts are type and shadow. The Passover is a type and shadow pointing us to Christ's crucifixion. He's our Passover lamb. The feast of the first fruits of the harvest is type and shadow. It finds its fulfillment in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The last one, the feast of booths, has to do with the final harvest. And that type and shadow is awaiting its fulfillment on the day when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. The final harvest. You're going to know over and again, Jesus, when he refers to the day of judgment, refers to it over and over and over again so that you don't miss the point. The day of judgment is like a harvest. The angels go out and gather up everything. Wheat, chaff, weeds, good stuff. And then there's a threshing floor where everything is separated. The chaff is burned up. The wheat is taken into the barn. The end. So this final one was really about the harvest day. Type and shadow. Fulfillment still coming. Pay attention to the signs you're supposed to look for. That's the idea. Okay. All right. 
We're going to end there today, and we will pick it up from this point next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.